0: Welcome to the Locker Room podcast. I've got Joe and Ross back here with me again. The three Musketeers lads are back together, brothers in arms. Today we're going to have a quick chat. Uh, first of all, welcome back.
1: Hi, Kieran. Well, Ross. <laughs> yeah.
2: good, to back. good to see you. On, yeah, Saturday morning. It's nice to be doing this. So I couldn't think of anything better to be doing. So, welcome
1: to Absolutely, Ross. The sun's shining outside. It's about 30 degrees.
2: <laughs> I couldn't good. be more honest. I couldn't be more honest than that. That's, that's not. That's not me really being funny
0: at all. It's, it's good to be sitting in chatting to you two lads when the sun is shining outside, and, and we've got we got a, we bought a little paddling pool for the girls. <laughs> so so um, I'm forgoing putting my feet in that lads to be to be in here chatting to you about London GA and lessons learned. Well, he says paddling pool, Joe, but he's a 25-metre by 20-metre <laughs> pool in, his, in Enfield, so he's being modest. <laughs> that, that, that's it
1: well anyway,
0: sir. Ross, that, that, that's all from my lawyer wife. That's definitely not from the DSS business. Or <laughs> QPR. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so this week, uh, what we're going to do, we're going to follow up on our part one of lessons learned from our time in London, GA, And obviously, we're using... London, as a framework of what some of our experiences, along with Ross obviously throwing in a bit of the q p r stuff and all, but really, I think for the audience and for people listening, they, they probably are interested just to learn about these things in general, and we we'll just reference those things. We we'll touch on as well uh, i 'm sure some of the stuff that chris Ramsey and bernard jackman and and the things that they spoke about and Rich Clark and everything like that as well so um, last week, we spoke about. Setting up the culture, bringing in the performance or the the support staff, um, lessons learned, and kind of in general about reflecting back on the program and what we did and what we learned. This week, we're going to be a little bit more specific and we're going to focus on, or this episode, we're going to focus on sports science and, and coaching, Rust.
2: Yeah, like I said at the last one, kids. This is this is the exciting one for me because uh, the culture is so important. But you know, being on the grass with the players and the three of us working with the players and how we did that and that, how we constructed something with our philosophies and I think that's going to be really good for the listeners to hear um, and take a lot from it. I think and try and apply it in their in their own setting. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. I had a, I had a good day yesterday, Ross. As you know, we we got our presentations for our UEFA B in submitted and and presented which was which was good fun we're we both becoming coaches football coaches as well as sports scientists um and then submitted a little bit of work for the phd got back good feedback just initial kind of project um so last night i was sit, sitting down had a had my joe had my um had my little drop of whiskey so the the the, the teeling was all finished so i moved on to the Kilbegin. And a, a true on the Maradona movie, Ross. Yeah, I've I've not watched it, kids, but I've
2: a lot of people t- telling me to watch it. It's meant to be a fascinating movie. So yeah, you yeah. have to fill me in on that.
1: No, it was brilliant. A bit of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a
0: little sm- <laughs> a small drop, Joe. Just a small drop, as my as my mother would say. No, brilliant. It brilliant stuff. Before we get into the thing, um, crazy what 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 Maradona went through. In Naples, and he was he was like a demigod, really. And in the end, after a few years, after winning their first ever Syria in '87, I think, um, it just became suffocating for him, and and he 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 basically looked for a way out, and and hit the cocaine, hit the drugs, and and after the 1990 World Cup, where he, he asked the people's in, people in Naples to support Argentina instead of Italy. And then they knocked Italy Ross out on penalties. It kind of went all downhill from there. Yeah, I
2: bet it didn't go down well at all. But <laughs> I mean, it's it's sad to see some of that side that he's gone through, and especially in the most recent um, World Cup. You know, of him in the stands, it was it was quite sad to see because his talent was undoubtedly you know higher than most, and he was fascinating to watch. So yeah. yeah. it's just shows you the other side of the game, huh?
0: Yeah, it's difficult. it was interesting actually looking at it that. I thought that nowadays there's such a support network in professional football around these players. Like they're, they're living in their mansions, they've got security guards if they need, they've got support systems, psychologists from the club, everything like that. Um, I, I don't really see how that would happen nowadays, you know, how they're kind of left on their own to their own devices a bit.
2: Yeah, it probably still happens to a degree, you know, especially when when players retire. That's a massive transition um, that some players can't deal with. I, I don't know if you guys saw the Harry's Heroes that was on recently as well. Um, mm. took some English players back some, some old school English players Razor Rudder players like that yeah. I mean listen they've they've gone through some really hard times and they're in they're not in good places now you know mm. so I think but in this modern day it's less prevalent of course but we have mm. to still honour the fact that it's a real hard transition from from when they're not playing I think that's
0: the biggest time and that support yeah.
2: network gets taken away from them
0: Yeah definitely it got me thinking as well about actually then the best player ever and, and for me I always kind of think about Pelé, because he was so consistent and successful and, you know, three World Cups with Brazil, Maradona, I always thought, was the most talented. You know, the most pure, kind of raw talent I, I thought he had. And then, obviously, to the, the modern era, Messi, where I suppose you could say he's so consistent week in, week out, scoring goals, winning championships. Um, but he's never never done what, what Maradona did in, in bringing... Dragging his country all the way to the World Cup win.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, kids, I'm um, I'm a, a centre half, so I've always looked at the <laughs> game slightly different. Um, Old school players. I love the Italian defending. You know, Franco Baresi, yeah. um, even coming on Paolo Maldini. They they were some top top defenders. But you know, I didn't see them enough. I didn't watch them enough because I'm I'm a little bit younger than you, kids. And, and um, <laughs> like so. you know, my 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 ear. My era coming up, you know, funny story, actually, I'll quickly go into it. So we had the London, just before the, the Galway game, the London GA program, right? They did some staff and player profiles yeah. and they said to me, the media guy, Connor, said to me, um, he said, well, who, who's your favorite player? So you had to fill in your favorite player. Now, obviously, they meant Gaelic player, right? Yeah. Now, you know, I, I knew I knew a few Gaelic players, of course, but not 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 really. So I, I just thought, you know, what, I'm going to put a soccer player in there, a football player. So I put Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, and, and and the thing is, there's a big debate about him and Messi, but Ronaldo for me has got the whole. Package in terms of his work rate out out of possession. Mm. I think he, I think he's arguably more effective in different teams, but mm. Messi hasn't done it at other teams. You know his country, he drags them through. So I pitch Ronaldo. I think Ronaldo's phenomenal. And yep. one of the selectors or the old selectors at London, that wasn't involved anymore, <laughs> came before the game and he said um and he got a bit funny with me actually and thought you know it was a bit of an insult to Gaelic you know he thought I was kind of either a bit silly or something but I was just yeah. having a little bit of a joke but um anyway when we only lost by four points and, and took him to a
0: whisker of, of nearly nicking a result he didn't say anything after him <laughs> after the game so yeah. so hold on so you you were preparing for the Galway game getting ready and everything like that and you had some fella from London then coming up to you and start giving you grief about picking Cristiano Ronaldo yeah. Just
2: basically a bit of a remark about, oh, you probably didn't even know a Gaelic player, or uh, yeah, met yeah, a Gaelic yeah. player. You're a bit stupid, and I just kind of laughed off. You know, we was preparing, so yeah. But anyway, yeah, yeah. you
0: know, interesting. That, that Ronaldo would have to stay in this era. Yeah, you know, my my favorite player was Brazilian Ronaldo. I have to say, I I loved watching him play, and he like he was in in whatever '98. I was 15 or something like that, so it was like kind of perfect time, perfect period. For supporting and everything, and yeah, he was the phenomenon until he, he got his knee injuries. Joe, any any soccer player, favorite soccer players from Mayo uh, Bridge or anything?
1: I, <laughs> <laughs> I I love the old Ronaldo here, and just like yeah. yourself, yeah. Uh, you know, the start of the nineteen ninety eight World Cup. Just looking forward to that. Obviously, it didn't end didn't end well for him the ninety eight World Cup, uh, yeah. but overall, it has to be Maradona. I can just Ooh. I can just about uh, remember Maradona in the nineteen eighty six World Cup. Uh, yeah. where he's, you know, single hand handedly, you know, won the World Cup for them. So yeah, it has to be Maradona for me.
0: Yeah. There's a brilliant documentary out there on the nineteen eighty-six uh, World Cup. It's called Hero. And it's all about Maradona, but also Butrigenia with Spain, and Michel Platini with France, and um Ruminige with Germany. And it goes through all these different characters and the great games like Brazil, Brazil versus France, quarter final going to penalties, Curaca, Zico. It's a it's a classic and it's it's well worth watching. And then Ross, obviously the hand of God is there as well. And Gary <laughs> Gary Lineker becoming top scorer, but um, Maradona putting him out. Yeah, listen, it's comical, isn't it, when you look back at it, really? I
2: mean, it probably would never happen in this game, but listen. yeah, England weren't bad. You know, people give a stick out to England, and I think they want to, you know, the home of football and all that, and they get a little bit of stick. But back then, Gary they weren't a bad team. Or, you know, they wasn't really. Joe, Joe, did, Mickey Linden, did he ever play soccer?
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think he played for Urey Town. He played for the local did team, he? Town. Yeah, he, he might have had a few games for them, or the Corn being League, the local league. Uh, But I I think his first sport was Gaelic football. He was able to specialise at an early
0: age, you see. That's right. Very topical, yeah. That's for another podcast, Joe. (laughs) Don't (laughs) don't get Ross started on that. (laughs) Okay, lads, we'll move on. Oh, just uh, obviously for anybody who hasn't signed up to the website, head over at dealysportscience.com. We're running a 20% off uh, membership at the moment. Men, we've hit 230 Members now who are part of the group, who are in the WhatsApp group, getting all the information every week. Um, it's, it's been going great, Joe.
1: Yeah, absolutely brilliant, uh, Kieran. to see the, the members uh, flooding in and to see all the uh, support that the coaches uh, give to each other on the WhatsApp group. And uh, obviously there's lots of new material that, that we put up in terms of practices myself that, that I keep putting up maybe two or three times a week. Yeah, uh, So so very interesting stuff, hopefully for the return back to back to
0: GA. Yeah that's it exactly we've added a hurling section to it as well with Barry Milan we must get him on the podcast actually within the weeks um, and there's loads of information about all the webinars that are going on every week and so it's a good time good time to join up. Ross let's jump in um, straight away to the sports science monitoring. Um, so mon- People think that sports science is it's kind of a a sexy industry, it's interesting, it's working in either professional sport or at least elite amateur sport and everything. Um, the technologies is there, the GPS, the questionnaires, it's very the, the fitness testing, it's very dynamic and interesting. Um but it's hard graft. It takes time it, it, it takes talent but also a lot of diligence and, and hard work and everything. Do you think it's worth it in, in teams? Uh, great question
2: kieran um i think with the with the full-time the full-time program that we have and i think you have to be doing that you know you have to be with whatever your resources are from a, a financial point of view and and staff point of view whatever you can do then you have to be doing to the maximum you can because you, you've got them players in full-time you know and it's and and you have to be looking at every little thing that's going to give you a little edge or that difference over, over someone else or even just within that to enhance that program you've got. So you make sure things like the questionnaires. I mean, th- these are very, very prevalent things that are all around the globe now and people are doing them day to day, but it's important that you listen to your players and you're getting good info on how they've responded to certain training program days before or matches, etc. So that might have an impact on, on your current program. It's essential that you're monitoring then training load and internal response, whether it's heart rate, you know, RPE strongly linked to that as well and and a subjective psychological view of that and also with the gps stuff and and getting some objective data because it just aids you your decision making process and not only does it make the training program better it gives you a real good understanding of what each player can do and can tolerate and how to push their boundaries as well as coming off them um then looking at the part-time stuff you know when we when we first moved into london i kind of said to you look i don't see the scope here to bring it in at the moment. We had the main thing was setting up the program and getting right people. We took the RPEs, um, we started to flirt around with the questionnaires and a little bit more informally discussing with the players, but we didn't have the manpower or the time to implement anything else than that. And over time things kind of evolved and I think at the time we were maybe one of the first counties, even though we're small we were small London Mm -hmm. to actually be using GPS and, and collecting that data on a training session. But you know, when you look at the biggest thing, was that the difference in 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 us setting up a program or, or a part-time um, program being set up well, probably not. Um, you've got people doing reports then at 12 o'clock at night. So you have to be, you know, you have to be very realistic on what you can do and, and what's going to add real weight to the program. You know, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. hundred
0: percent. It's, it's a question, isn't it, that it, uh, of resources. So if you're going into a club, whether in lower league professional football or higher level in Gaelic football it is a question really of what you can do like do you have the manpower do you have the time do you have the people and obviously if you don't like if you don't have many people and not enough resources you probably wouldn't do it wouldn't you not you probably just you know do your coaching I always think that if your program is really good and well thought out and well planned you know you're covering a lot of bases the most important times and we've had experience of it is when the program is maybe not so good somewhere and you might need the monitoring to kind of show that up. So the data will back up your opinion of look, we're pushing the players too hard here. They're breaking down, they're fatigued and you you, you may need it in that situation. Um, but in our situation where we did have access to it, I always thought that, well, it may give you that extra little inch, you know, that extra little chance of getting a win and to improve and everything. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah 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 100% makes sense and and I think it's fair to say I think the question like the philosophical question that comes to my mind is if if you if it's going to take away from the practitioner or the coaching staff from actually developing their ability to coach the players talk to the players and put in a real good program then I don't think it's worth the time invested if you've got the resources to do it alongside that like those exponential, essential things that you need to put in place, then it gives you a great impact. you know. But number one is making sure you've got the time to put in a well-structured program and to manage the players and talk to the players, and then the data then can come
0: alongside it. Yeah, it, 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 100%. My approach to it all was, was that we, di- we didn't have as good players, obviously, as Galway, Mayo, Roscommon. Um, we didn't have the resources, the money, the funding, we definitely didn't have the training pitches. We had turnover of players, 15 players every year leaving. To me, they were like the absolute essential things. So then we had to make everything else, not just good, or not just as good as any of the top teams in the GA world, but world class. So we used to always say that, well, let's make this world class. Let's make it the best it possibly can be. And yeah, it will necessitate reports being sent out at midnight and people downloading GPS and WhatsApp groups organizing the rehab and everything like that. But we kind of Joe, we, we nearly needed those things. Because we didn't have the players and the, the set the, the facilities and everything, we kind of needed those extra little few inches that we could get and, and through our coaching and sports science program.
1: Yeah, um exactly here. Yeah I think um as as you say you know we we didn't have the the best players in the league and we didn't have the greatest resources in fact we were we were training on a rugby field so in order to kind of facilitate against that we have to kind of do the monitoring stuff and we have to, we had to do the gps stuff and and the uh the well-being questionnaire and all these things are very very important i think in that type of setup because it also gets the buy-in of the players as well. And then the players become more self-aware and then they'll look after themselves a little bit more because they're filling out a questionnaire. And they also know that the coaching staff and the management, you know, care, they care about not only what's happening on the field but off the field as well. So they they add that, you know, few extra yards in a training session maybe. So, yeah, yeah so I think it was very important, the, the the monitoring side of things.
0: Yeah, something I always used to say, Ross, to the, the intern sports scientists is that, first of all think about how you communicate the message across to us to the coaching team so for instance in terms of the wellness questionnaires that the players used to fill out on the smarter base before arriving to training that we don't need a sheet with all the data on it we just need these two or three players who are potentially slept poorly or feeling muscle soreness or perceptual feeling of fatigue like we just want bite-sized quick information that take care of these players. And, and the other one that I mentioned to them always was that if there's something does flag, if a player does flag up something, you have to respond to that. Because as soon as you don't respond to that, the player will say, well, what's the point in me flagging up something? Because these lads aren't listening, they're not noticing
2: yeah that's essential and that, and that's the same in, in the full time you know I've seen it in the full time program as well where players are filling out questionnaires and nothing's acted on it now I don't mean if someone comes in with soreness that you have to modify their training that day because sometimes you've planned in the program that they're probably going to be a little bit sore that day or you know they might have slept funny or you know there's loads of reasons but it's you have to put it into context you have to go and get that info from them um, and you have to say you know w- what do you think it was how have you slept you link everything together and yeah. then you bring it into the MDT and, and that's the stuff that you know my role was to bring that then to you and Joe and say, look, you know, we've spoken to these players. This is the suggestion around him. He's feeling a little bit leggy. And and often it was your what, what was your gut feel? Because mm. you you might say, well do you know what he, he played really well at yeah. the weekend and he put in a real shift. Here's the numbers um he, he subjectively looked like he had a really good game. Um, we need him for next weekend. So do you know what let's play on the the side of caution and yeah. maybe modify him tonight. Whereas I might be saying, look, I think he's okay to push, but that's the discussions that have got to be
0: had. So. Yeah, I think that was the beauty of it, though, of, of having you in that role of, of head of performance in that your understanding of sport and your understanding of the coaching process and everything. Uh, and that's why I think sports scientists do need a, a, um, a kind of a foundation knowledge of whatever sport that they're, they're working in, or at least in sport. You know, do you understand? Like that kind of coaching yeah. performance, and a real proper understanding of sport. And like you say, what are the days to kind of pull off the players a little bit? What are the days to push them? And it was really good that you could kind of get all this information and then just give us a simple message, you know, at at the end.
2: For sure. And I mean, it sounds it sounds simple, doesn't it? But that, it wasn't easy. And especially when the part-time players, you've only got them for two days a week. We're constantly wanting to improve them, make them fit and make them better players, but also recognise that some of them had physical jobs. Some of them was going through a lot of stress outside. So sometimes the training took a real hit for the sake of just keeping them, like not breaking them essentially. And sometimes we made mistakes and we did break players that weren't ready for what we were trying to do. So we were learning lessons all the time and then the, questions, sometimes we discussed certain players for half an hour, you know, before training. So it's not simple, but it's, it's, it's
0: important to be had. Yeah, I think that that's the heavy lifting of like the extra time and everything like that spent on it. I, I always hear a lot of people as well and they'll say that, oh, the stats or what will a GPS tell you and what will an RPE and a questionnaire and stats don't matter. You need to just you know go with your gut feeling or speak to the player or whatever but i always say that it it creates conversation like stats doesn't make a decision for you you don't you don't look at your ipad and go okay that player now he has to come off or he can't train like there's the science but then there's the art also where you gather all that data and essentially you have a conversation and you then you ha- that the, the art is coming to the decision isn't it and and you know better than anyone, Ross, you, you improve at that. You improve your gut feeling over time.
2: Yeah, it's, it's there to aid, like you said, create conversations and, and aid your understanding around particular players and trends within particular types of players. So like, I think it's all about piecing things together. So you, you have someone that's done X amount of whatever we're looking at, total distance, high-speed running. They've given a certain number for RPE. We know what the session content was. We know how it looked on the eye. Um, we also then see how they've responded the next day or the next training session. Um, you talk to them, you get a feel for how they're feeling, how they're responding. And them sort of regular kind of um, um, bits of info and collations of info, they give you pictures over time. And then, you know, you start to feel and, and also you add in things about personal life and stressors and the work, and especially in the part-time stuff and the full-time, you know, if they're young boys, what are they doing outside? How are their bodies growing yeah. and maturing? And all those sort of things give you good experience so that you can say, do you know what, today, in my experience on what I've learned over the X 12 years, mm. I think we should come off in today. Or do you know what, no, we can push in today. Forget yeah. the numbers a little bit. Let's go beyond the numbers. He's he's, he's good to
0: go. So yeah. it is, it's very much experience-based, but you're using all the data all the time to aid that. Yeah. Dude, just before we go on, there's a narrative out there now in the sports science world of don't worry about the data, just talk to your players. And it's a very – it's kind of like a very – new age American approach I would say where it's like you know just just talk to your players man just just get a feel for how they are and everything like that but like for instance I, I'll tell you when I was a player if the manager spoke to me about anything about how you, how are you how you feel and whatever or, or coaches or anyone I'm telling him yeah 100% brilliant feel great I'm I'm ready for the weekend and you know I'm buzzing or whatever because I want to play the game So like players won't always tell the truth and sometimes they may not even know stuff about their body that the data will show you.
2: Yeah, and and for me, it comes across a bit lazy. Like I just think, you know, you, of course, people who are taking these objective markers, whether it's jump scores, whether it's you know questionnaires, whatever you're doing to look at different markers, of course you're talking to your players as well. So yeah. again, you're piecing all the info together, you're piecing psychology info, you're piecing everything together, and that's what helps you make a good informed decision. So
0: you need both. You need you need the science yeah, and the art. That's the thing. Ross, just quickly then, can you just give us a little bit of information about um how how we used the GPS and, and and I suppose the RPEs as well, just as regards planning out or we are, are planning out the microcycle and the macrocycle and everything like that and what kind of reports you would produce on a daily basis and a weekly basis.
2: Yeah um of course so obviously looking at the planning of the sessions we would have recommended RPEs and, and recommended target targeted um Um, numbers for certain metrics. We used total distance, high speed running, uh, anything above 67%, number of accels, number of decels, just as a four mainstream ones that we felt was quite good for people to understand. We didn't want to flood info. And and this is the same for for both full-time and and the part-time setup. Um, Then obviously on on a reporting basis, so we'd have that for targets for for each session and then a weekly target based on what we felt was an appropriate um, external loading. Then on on a on a report, then you would essentially report back to that. So you'd report back to the coach on that particular session. We felt you know today's session was under pitch based on the recommendations, or over pitch, or so it was bang on today within ten percent threshold either side. Um, and and again. you know people say well how do you know the numbers how do you know the numbers that you're coming up with is right but we've had 12 years experience in working with players and yeah we're not getting it spot on every time and some players could probably do more Um, sometimes some players maybe need to do less and it's that individual nature that you you then take to it but it's really good for us to have some recommendations for our week and for our our each training session to say well we feel at this time four days out from the game we can push our players to 80% of a game from volume but we're going to overload them in in intensity with action." these cell markers so as an example so that's how we did it reports then went back to a coach and and then again those discussions and those topics started to to flow a bit more along with the feedback on how the players responded to it because mm. that's the main thing for me it, the external load is important to have but it's how they react and if you could pick any marker any monitoring tool it would be how did the players react whether that's objective data or subjective data from it
0: yeah and then, just as regards how it actually worked, so like the, the there was the Dropbox, there was the whatsapp, there was the emails
2: yeah, so the, so the reports would go out to email to all the staff, so all the staff were included in the emails, and we were massive at, at both organizations around transparency and and making sure every every staff member has um, i think has the info. I think it was only the kit man uh, didn't have it at yeah. London because he didn't he didn't have he an didn't email have an address email. <laughs> yeah, so it, like he, you <laughs> yeah, he, did, he, he didn't have WhatsApp either. So we, I think we texted it to him to make sure he got it um, oh, and paid the paid the 40p um, picture okay, message uh, yeah. fee. But no, listen, so emails go out to staff and then to players as well. So WhatsApp um, out mm-hmm. to players, because like Joe said, they have good buy-in on how much they've done. And, and it really drives a bit of competitiveness mm-hmm. amongst them about, well, I've covered this amount of high-speed running, I've covered this distance. and. and as long as it's safe to do so and that individuals, you know, we can really start to drive them on. That's great
0: because that's where you really push the the boundaries of performance. Yeah. Yeah. And Joe leading on from that, like from your point of view, as a coach, what did you gain from that monitoring the GPS and everything? And also how did the players respond? Like did they buy into it? Did they, did they gain much from it or what did you think?
1: Um, yeah, just on your first question, Kieran, about from the coaching side of things, um, as a kind of a new coach to the inter scene and all the sports science <coughs> that surrounded it, uh, one of the things that kind of interested me was was that if I was maybe taking a session, <clears throat> um, there was a target that you kind of wanted to hit. And I think Ross or yourself would have put a target in for the RPE or the general RPE and the distance covered. So that that was pretty good because I never ever seen that before. So it kind of gave you um, a framework of what you were dealing with in the session. You know, you, you knew yeah. that you couldn't uh, push them too hard if the RPE was six was six, or if the yeah. if the kilometres wrong was five thousand, you know
0: that you couldn't do too much. Not bad, Ro- not bad, Ross. Not bad, knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> no. he, he must have gone back over the plans, <laughs> Joe. Um, <laughs> 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 just just to
2: jump in there jokes it's really relevant and uh, obviously you'll carry on with your bits here i just listened to the eddie jones podcast and he was talking about um he was saying that the sessions have to always be coach led and then the scientists feedbacks onto what what they've done and he he doesn't yeah. believe in like the, the scientists prescribing numbers but i think if mm-hmm. you go down that route completely uh, you're in danger a little bit of always just chasing your tail now the coaching program might be spot on but i think it's about mm-hmm. working together of what you think is an appropriate target for and how your content's
0: going to fit into that load do you know what i mean yeah, well joe well, 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 so, before you say, answer that like the one problem you can have with that is the, the coach isn't an expert in the physical corner you know they, they haven't gone to university about that and it's not their expertise so it seems like it could it could end up with a bit of difficulty there but but you can have really good coaches also obviously for sure sorry joe
1: yeah no no russ um i i kind of agree with you there. Um, I think um, you know, in many ways the, the sports science has to kind of give has to give the guidelines uh, for you to work within if you like. But you know, you can work you do work together. Yeah. you know, for example, if a training session, if you wanted the training session to last for ninety minutes, then that gives you a target. So yeah, so I'm a teacher, you know, my lessons last forty five minutes. I'm not gonna plan a lesson that's fifty minutes, you yeah. know, because it's within the framework. So yeah, so I think it's very important that both of them <laughs> Both of them work together. Um, and just going back to your point, your question there, Karen, about the players, about players buying into it. Absolutely. You know, the players bought into the to the GPS uh, big time, you know, into the sports mm-hmm. science that surrounded it. And, you know, any feedback, whether it be reflections, you know, from questionnaires that you've carried out after games, yeah. or whether it be when you're on the pitch with them and they're just talking to you, or even after a training session. the Players love all that type of stuff. They, yeah. they love the numbers. Especially the players that, especially the players that can hit the numbers. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's the other players that, as Ross said, those that don't really do as much as you would like them to do. Uh, maybe those are the players that you kind of have to watch out for. But um, but yeah, I think I think once you get the whole buy-in from the, from the players, and you know, you've got the expertise. Obviously, you guys in the sports science background, and all the qualifications that you have. Yeah, I think that's massively important.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting one because, like. I suppose it did show up some of the players. We knew some of the players weren't putting in a shift. And the GPS numbers that came out just proved that point and probably showed the player more than it showed us because we knew, you know, and, and, and some players were slightly deluded about, oh, I'm really putting a shift. And then you showed the numbers and go, yeah, but you covered like 4,000 metres whereas everyone else covered 6,000 like that, that that's a real problem. But one one thing that surprised me, Ross, was the amount of high speed running, especially and distance and sprint distance that Gaelic footballers covered in training versus footballers. Like you remember, David Dunn was covering, like he could cover a thousand meters of high speed running in a training session, and you know I don't know maybe like nine thousand meters in a training session where. We didn't think that that was the hardest session, but I suppose the expansiveness and the size of of practices and that high speed running repeatability or whatever you want to call it was was there, wasn't it
2: yeah and and again that's taken um we spoke to rich Clark about it and and seeing what the sport training gives to these players, so you you analyze and you say right okay, well this." Particular training program is giving our players real good high speed running, and and because of the extensive nature and the sport itself, it's very large. There's no offside. The game's stretched, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So you then know that. Well, actually, what what do we need to give these players to overload them and to make them better? So some things like the core skills and focusing mm. on you know higher accel decel work will actually help them in specific mm. moments of the game. Now that's not to say that we're not going to still develop max speed properties and, and yeah. work on that, but actually the the volume that we need to get in maybe that isolated bit of training. Isn't as high as we want to get in in the soccer in the football world because yeah. most of their drills are very tight technical within the philosophy anyway. So it just puts yeah. your perspective. You want to put your bias towards certain physical training so that you give them a real rounded um, physical
0: profile and, and training program. Yeah, I, I would think I predict that Aussie rules training is probably very similar. Whereby the Gaelic pitch is so big, there's a lot of man on man. There's carrying the ball. There's a lot of high speed run, a lot of sprint distance, and it's it's different than football, isn't it? Football is more like about how you're set up, technical skill, control of the ball in tight spaces, and it's it's a it's a different thing. Joe, I think it's an interesting one. I think what you were alluding to of like if you think of we're in the generation Instagram or the you know, whatever you want to call the 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 young people, the young players now that they love technology, they love data, um, they, they like to look good, <laughs> they like to look good and fit and, and strong and everything like that, and it kind of links in to like enjoying getting data, especially about themselves. I always found that whatever about the team and everything like that, they were obsessed with their own data and their own video clips from games and everything.
1: Yeah, absolutely, care. You know, and, and we are in this modern era, era of technology and you can of have players that, you know, maybe the average age of a county player might be in their early 20s. And these are the players that have known nothing else but technology, but the internet, because they would have been born in the time if it's inception. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I think that, you know, these players love data. They love information, a uh, little bit nuggets of information and they love being competitive with, with players around them. And yeah, and you know, I think you've alluded to a little bit their kind of individual side of things. You know, they're they're in it for themselves to a certain extent. You know, they are, and they they they're the only thing that matters in their own world. You know, when it comes to sport, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it's very important for them.
0: Which which is okay if you tap into it and and they use yeah. it for the greater good of the yes. team, business. And yeah, the business. as as
1: as yes, as long as it's about the team as yeah. well. You know, if you want to improve a team, improve yourself first. And that's one of the most important things about any team sport. You know, if you want to improve yeah. the team, improve you.
0: Yeah, exactly. We'll we, we move on to that in a few minutes. Interestingly, when I went to India with Peter Taylor, um, and he had been around Hull and Leicester and England under-21s and stuff like that as manager, and it didn't go so well for him in India uh, with the with Curl of Blasters. And he, I remember he said to me on last night when he left, and we stayed on with the team for the rest of the season, and he just said he he just can't identify with the players, the current generation, and he he struggles to know to, to interact with them. You know that he got to that point where he, he was you know a bit bit older as a manager or whatever, and just struggled Ross with those kind of young players and and the way they taught and everything.
2: Yeah, it's, it's completely different now, isn't it? To so when I mean, he, he was assistant to Bobby Robson, I think, as well um, years oh, yeah. ago, and was, and was and I think was pivotal yeah, yeah. In, in in his yeah. success. So he's he's obviously operated at a real high calibre and has and has got great success. But nowadays, you know, players are different. You know, that the, yeah. the lifestyles different, the technology is different, the, the, the ethos around players now don't roll their sleeves up and work as hard. Probably there's some truth in that, and uh, yeah. you know they're they're a bit hesitant if they're feeling little knocks and things. Yeah. So. You know, you, you can slam them, and you can say that well, that's not the way to be, or you know, as a society, we accept that that's changed, and we and we enhance it. So I yeah. think you ha- you have to change with it, roll with the punches, change with the times, and um and yeah, definitely develop as as the ages develop through through the centuries.
0: Yeah, and I think it it comes down to personality as well, because for instance, on the other hand, then uh, Terry Phelan, who was there as well, was you know, brilliant with the players and and knew how to interact with them and get the best one and a lot of his approach was giving players confidence you know, Mm -hmm. just chatting to them and telling them how good they are and what they can do today and I know it, it, I wouldn't call it it can be fake but I suppose you're trying to just get the best out of your players and and by them being confident and everything there's a greater chance of that Ross, we'll move on um the, the the planning and, and organizing as regards the periodization and just yep. how how we sat down to organize the microcycle and the macrocycle. What the hell are those things? And you <laughs> do, do they matter if your players are technically not good enough and you're not well set up?
2: Uh, loads of things to talk about there. I think let's let's strip it back a little bit and talk about the process. Um, yeah. We talk about integrated approach and there's not many, I mean, the fact that we work together day in, day out, QPR massively helps, but there's not many times in that situation where you're going to be able to plan the manager, head of performance and, and sit down and plan a season out um, together because normally the sports science will send over a periodized plan and then the coach will work within that framework. But we, you know, we, we didn't want to do that. We worked together and we said, right, what do you want from this season? So, if you talk about macrocycle, we're looking at the season-long plan. Um, yep. we're talking about mesocycle, then we had our phases, and if you talk about microcycle, we had our training weeks. So, we yep. sat down and said, right, what do we want for the season? And it's important to note that we didn't plan probably more than two or three months ahead. You know, because mm. so much can change, and it's it's important to know where the group were at the time. So, we sat down and said, right, where do we want this group to be in two three months? you've got your outcomes in terms of I need to put training camps here. I need to put, they need exposure to games, especially in London. QPR is a bit different, but you know, they didn't have game exposure. So I need to plug these in. We talk about the physical. We talk about where we wanted players to really be overreached. We talk about when we want to taper and that then fed into the process of, of longer planning and then real detail. I mean, we had sessions planned for three, four weeks at a time, exactly what sessions were, were going to happen. Now that doesn't mean that it wasn't going to change because you saw something on a Wednesday night that you wanted to revisit. So we we adapt the plan, but the, the integrated approach of me and you actually spending three hours planning it for the yeah. next two months, that was the most important part of that process.
0: Yeah. And they were very enjoyable sessions. I remember sitting down like in Harrow school gym, running through the program and like, bouncing off each other, different ideas, and actually, oh, uh, you know, maybe that you're right on that one, actually. Let's introduce a bit more fitness work or a bit more setup. up. And as you say, like, it is always in response to how the team is doing, you know, tactically and everything as well. So, setting up the team correctly. And so, like, you would have been in pre-season wanting us to, you know, get our high-volume aerobic work in and their fitness and their muscular endurance work and some strength work but obviously myself and joe's first job was like yeah but we need to set this team up like we need Mm -hmm. to build joe that like that was our focus we need to sort out our defense and get this team ready and especially because we had such high turnover of players
1: yeah and, and and uh which which means that the tactical side of things are massively important for for london so yeah so um that that was one of the key things and um especially defensively Kieran, without going into too much detail you know we we needed to get our defense right first and you know that that was what you would want it to, to kind of done in the early 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 season period so yeah so, yeah, so it was very important to uh, to get that in
0: yeah it it was interesting because the old model of the beginning of let's call it pre-season where you're just doing high volume aerobic work and you don't see the balls and everything like that I always say to people on different podcasts and presentations and all, A, the footballs well, the footballs are out on the very first night of pre-season, and B, we're probably dropping in tactical instructions right from the first session, aren't we? Because we really couldn't afford not to do that, Joe.
1: Yeah, you have to. You, you, you have to drop in a bit of technical in every single session, you know, uh, especially early on. Obviously, you can't really go to town on the tactical stuff. tactical stuff, at the beginning because the players might just get fed up because maybe they just want to play or whatever yeah. so so yeah so it's very important uh, that you kind of revisit the tactical stuff because we don't have a lot of time obviously getting these players fit technically as well you know a lot of them lead a lot of technical work and that's massively time-consuming as well the technical stuff which I'm sure we'll move on to yeah so, so, so it, it's all about the timing you know you, you can't really waste one minute Uh, in the county setup i don't think that's why everything needs to be planned right from the outset
0: as ross has said exactly and that yeah i think that is the key and that's why you spend so much time ross on all this planning is when we get to the session you can't waste a minute it was interesting because when i was doing the webinar for the ga uh, a little while ago, and speaking about that, somebody sent me on a screenshot of one of the questions that came through during the presentation, and it said, it was on David versus Goliath, and we were, David, preparing to, to play against higher-up teams of Goliath, and somebody said, if this is what David uh, did, Jesus, what what did Goliath did do? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what extent of the, pro, the planning and everything like that, but in some ways, Ross, it was nearly more important for us to do all that work.
2: For sure. And look, I'm, I, I haven't seen the work that's going on at the top end in the Gaelic. I haven't, but I'm confident that the work that was going on at London and the way we were, not the processes and the knowledge we had, because that's floating around all over the place, but yeah. the way we worked together and the way we constructed something that was so integrated and, and well planned out, like I'd, I would put money on it. that I don't think there's much, much higher levels going on anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's not blowing smoke up our backsides or anything like that. I just think we put in a real, real solid um, program where we just we were open. It's, it wasn't even about what we had to offer. It was about us bringing all our ideas together. Planning, making sure we're well prepared and well organized and adapting and giving the players what they need. And no one had egos. So if the physical side had to in the middle of a league, the physical side just went to the corner for a little bit because our main focus was setting up the defense and working on our core skills because basic errors under pressure were costing us, then that was the focus. So that was what the team needed. It wasn't about the X amount of of mass running we need to do on a Wednesday night. Well, yeah, we can get a setting of that, but this is more important. So yeah. that 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 that's how we established that that kind of
0: environment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, and the good thing for the DSS members is that all of this stuff is over on the website, dlesportscience.com. <laughs> every plan, every session plan, every locomotive continuum and macro cycle, and you can head over and you can actually see the detail that we went into. So it's good to jump on that. Ross, I'm going to cover the session order, and then maybe we'll pop over to you for the locomotive, and the um, the fitness continuums. So just because in the webinar, I went through this very briefly. I was asked a couple of questions about how you would order the sessions and everything like that. And in our micro cycle, it was very simple because we could, the gym was available on a Tuesday night. So we played on a Sunday. And then, so Tuesday was match day plus two. And actually we quite liked that because it gave the players a break on match day plus one completely, recovery So on Monday, Tuesday then was bringing them back in as a group into the gym session, and you could begin to kind of get the game out of the system and start chatting about the upcoming game, at times we did bits of analysis even just with individual, with players through huddle, and it was kind of a nice way to kind of get the week going again. Wednesday night then was our first pitch session. So that was match day plus three. And that was more, that was our highest loading session, wasn't it? It was like high cell. decel. Um, we're looking at RPEs of like, it could be an eight, could be, you know, seven, depending on when our next game is. Usually small sided stuff, tackling drills, one, uh, 1v1s, 2v2s. And that was our tough session. Then Thursday is off. Or some of the players did individual programs of gym sessions and everything like that, and then the Friday then was the next pitch session. Especially if the match was another match was on the Sunday, obviously the Friday then had to be very light, quite light. So you're looking at RP of five. Sometimes we strayed into RP of six if we felt that earlier in the season we wanted to improve their fitness. But that was more expansive, larger-sided games. You know, it could have been twelve v twelve or whatever it was. Um, we might do a bit of speed work. We might be doing a little bit of lactate stacking fitness work. Um, so a bit more extensive, let's say. So RP of about five or six, and then that session would probably be seventy-five minutes. With the the, the two, the Wednesday session was probably ninety minutes. I would say.
2: A bit more when you were coaching kids.
0: Sometimes talking too much, <laughs> Ross. And then Saturday would we'll be off and then the match match on Sunday. And that, that that was that was basically our session order. All the time it's in response to when the matches are. So if you're playing National League where it's game Sunday, game Sunday, game Sunday again, you're not going to be doing as much fitness work on the on the the, the Wednesday night. The, the last thing to mention about that week. As regards analysis, we would always do our own match analysis on the Wednesday night, reviewing the match the previous game, and then before the session on a Wednesday, Joel, wasn't it? And that was then it's kind of like that's out of your system, you're done, you're back out onto the pitch on the Wednesday, then afterwards, and you're prepping for the game, and usually the Friday night, then after training, you do a little bit of opposition analysis then for the upcoming week. So that that was, in a nutshell, that was a week. That was our training week. Then we move on, Ross. So you want to speak a little bit about then our locomotive continuum, our fitness continuums, and our aerobic testing every every six weeks or so.
2: Yeah, so just following on from that microcycle you spoke about Kears and just and how we cycle things because obviously the, the the pre-season period and was and pre-league was a lot different to when we got into the league campaign. So when we when we didn't have games thick and fast, you know, we worked on a very, very simple continuum. continue. I call it simple continuum where you start with higher volume work when they first come in, even eight minute runs, 12 minute runs to start with, um, progressing on to four. To your aerobic power work, your mass work to batter, so your intensity gets higher and higher, but your volume comes down a little bit as you shift through the continuum. And as you said, all these continuums are over on the website and free for all, all members as well. Um, now, when we're when we're in the season though, we cycle those fairly well. So you you know we kind of come away a little bit from the longer volume stuff and the high aerobic work a little bit, but every Five, six weeks we'll drop it in again because it's important that we remember the peripheral adaptations you get from that and most of the stuff we're doing in sessions is very high intensity you know whether it's technical work in the phases whether it you want intensity out of them so you have to sometimes take it back and give them what they're not getting and get the longer volume in. But we'd essentially mainly in season stick with some mass running. So 15 seconds on longer, extensive type running, even if it was a high axle day on a Wednesday, you still then would get some, some high speed running and extensive running on the Wednesday in the fitness work, or you'd then overload the axle work and go onto Tabata staff where you're getting some turns in, um, and that really starts to link in with the lactate stacking. So accumulations of inorganic phosphates, et cetera, et cetera, making things more high intensity. So towards lactate stacking, and they were the three, and the lactate stacking was like 400 meter intervals, max 400 meter runs. They were the three fitness ones we would cycle in season, essentially. Um, and then we'd drop in some, some longer ones in as well. But it's important to note that when the players were playing, the ones that were starting week on week drop them out of that fitness work when we didn't feel they needed it now there were some individuals that were playing 60 minutes who needed to get fitter um key key members of our team that needed to get fitter so they might do it but essentially then your non-starters might do some extra small sided games and extra fitness work and the starters might only train on wednesday for 75 minutes because their fitness is coming Game after game, and in the week yeah. we're just kind of keeping them ticking over. So that's kind of the, the the fitness side of things. We tested them every six weeks, and that was something that you was a big driver for and a big advocate for. And I think something that pushed our practice even more because mm. every six weeks, then you've got a real um, fitness marker for where they are. And so it was just a four lap test of, of where we trained, as Joe said on the rugby pitch at, um, over in Ealing, um, which worked out to be just over twelve hundred meters, um, four laps. You know, you get a timed uh, time response. And when you look at those results over time, sometimes they've gone, they've got worse, but not because they're, they're, they're lacking fitness, because probably they've had quite a heavy schedule and they're fatigued. So they're the questions that you're constantly talking about
0: and, and, devi- and devising those individual plans for on the players. Uh, and that, that that was for, just to cut into you, cut across, uh, that was for the mass testing, wasn't it? The maximum aerobic speed test that you can then take your your math scores from your distances, your Tabata. And, you know, anybody who's in the sports science world would know exactly what we're speaking about that. But I loved that test because it was integrated into the session. It was so simple to set up. So all we'd have to do is, like, at the beginning of the session, after we do the core skills and warm-up and stuff like that, it's like, okay, lads, over we go. We're getting our four, uh, four laps in test and even aside from it being a test it was a little bit of an aerobic stimulus that you know it's good as you said previously to drop in because there's so much high intensity anaerobic work high load accel cell work in training 2v2s and stuff like that it's nice actually for them to get an aerobic stimulus as well
2: yeah and even looking from an injury prevention point of view and the injury prevention is a buzzword but i think if if you can drop in these longer aerobic running like I think they're going to stand players in really good stead in terms of recovery, in terms yeah. of handling those high intensity, more central kind of um, targets in terms of their their training load. But yeah, no, it was great. It tested and it tested their mentality as well. You know, on yeah. a cold Wednesday night, you've you've two weeks ago you've been in the league. You know, you've had a hard game in the league. All right, well, let's see who wants to roll their sleeves up and work hard and try and beat their time. So, yeah. and and, they, and beat individuals.
0: And they they had that as well, whereby there was times when, when we gave them a week off after the league that you could see their times then in that first week in preparation, Joe, in preparation for the championship then they were leading in, that their times might have got a little bit worse and it was like you could see the, the motivation and determination from them then it's like, shit, okay, I need to get my time down by five seconds or, you know, such a tiny change but they felt if they were hitting that point they're ready then.
1: Yeah, and again, Kieran, it goes back to giving giving players targets, mm. giving them goals. If they don't have targets, especially their own targets, um, then they're not they're not going to know how to how to beat it, you know. Or if they have beaten their target, or yeah. if they're fitter. Um, and I think just going back to your point as well about integrating it into uh, the the session, integrating the fitness tests into sessions. I think um, a lot of kind of clubs might just have a training session that just that just tests the players. And it's just a session to test the players and they're not really utilising the time correctly. Yeah. you know. And I think with the model that we had, uh, we actually used fitness testing within a session, within a kind of normal session, if you like. Yeah. And yeah. as you see, it was used at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so, so the players, you know, and Ross says maybe players were coming kind of, I don't know if they were coming demotivated because they knew they had a tough, you know, 1200 metre, uh, run but they also knew that after that run they had a you know all football session yeah so that yeah. kind of counteracted the kind nobody likes doing those difficult runs you know Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so no, knowing that you're going to be playing football after it uh, yeah. actually motivates you a little bit better especially with us Kieran because uh, we sent out the session plans beforehand and the players knew that
0: they were getting a lot of football after that. They could see it, exactly. Ross, do you want to touch on the locomotive continuum? Now I know we've got loads of videos of that up on the website and everything like that, the vlogs, so Mm. anybody who's a member will be well used to this, but just what it was and how we integrated it into the sessions.
2: Yeah, for sure. So we um, we got three main areas to our locomotive um, skills development and we call it skills development because we feel that we are developing their skill set in a certain, a certain physical parameter, if you like. So we look at acceleration, deceleration uh, as a first starter, change the direction, how that uh, kind of fits into agility and then obviously our max speed and top speed running. And within all of that, so we had a two week block for each of those themes. Um, and within that two week block, we would start very close skill. Um, very technical but not too technical you know you, it wasn't like the sprint coach was coming down and, and teaching them it was just a few couple of key points around you know body position how to stop effectively a couple of key points just trying to maximize what technique they had really. And then we shifted that along to to making it more open and more reactive, making it more game-based. So then you had more 1v1 drills, um, overloading the, the the cognitive side of things and then having to think about things as well as trying to execute that certain skill. So we just worked on two week cycles, but then obviously from the GPS data and the stats we had, we made sure they was hitting enough high speed running, um, sprint distance throughout the week to, to make sure we're optimising or maintaining certain parameters if we wasn't focusing on, on max speed in that period, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, really good. Okay, I'm going to move on to the core skills and what, what we tried to do was we took it from QPR really, Chris Ramsey and anyone who listened to the podcast will be well aware of what he was talking about of those core technical skills that all players needed to be competent at. So In terms of Gaelic football, what we introduced was little soloing ones, hand-passing, dummy turning, um, uh, dummy solos, uh, putting the cloak up, protecting the ball. So we kind of came up with about, probably about eight different movements, players working in trees. And the nice thing was you could just put, like fly through these at the beginning of the session. We actually got to the point where, it was really cool actually to see where the players would be out before the session, doing their own little bit of warm-up, whatever, we blow the whistle and we say, right, bang, let's get into the core skills, lads, and they would just run it themselves. And all that was was three players together in a little triangle, working on each repetition for 30 seconds and rotating around who's actually doing the skill. Um, Again, they're over on the website, on the videos and everything like that, so have a look there. But it was simple core skills, and we felt it was just pure repetition of soloing on your non-dominant side and hand-passing and turning and grabbing the ball and coming back with it again and simple little fundamental movements that are the foundation of performance and we felt that okay I know there's a lot of talk out there at the moment and especially in the GA world about a a games-based approach which we agree with but word drill ross has become a dirty word and and closed skill is now a dirty word and repetition and i suppose we took a slightly different view didn't we
2: yeah uh, i mean i call it practice just to just to get get uh, get around that so people don't come for (laughs) you but (laughs) look games really interesting what chris said and i'm a big advocate of this the game's only the teacher if you teach them the games and if you teach them the game itself and what he means by that is that the game is made up of lots of different things in isolation which then comes together so we were we were failing in, in many senses because people's basic technical proficiency wasn't good enough and we couldn't get the repetitions that we wanted in a game-based scenario in a possession drill in a phase of play in, in in whatever we were doing um so you do need to take it back to the lab and work on repetition repetition then the skill is transferring that into like we say about the locomotive stuff transferring that into the game base when to pass you know uh why are you passing there when there's pressure can you handle the pressure all those other sides to the game that you don't get in just the close skill but you have to teach the closed skill, and anyone that says that you don't, I, I I can't
0: understand it. I I don't agree with it. Yeah, Joe Joe, as a teacher, would you come along and give a uh, let's say an eight-year-old a maths problem, a quadratic quadratic equation, and say, okay, there off you go, and if you don't know how to do it, well, let the quadratic equation be the teacher, and you'll learn from it. <laughs>
1: Uh, No definitely not. (laughs) Um, One of the things that we do in uh, teaching is um, at the beginning of every lesson uh, we make sure that they they sit down and do a task that is the learning from the previous lesson. Uh, We kind of call that meaningful practice and that's routine and the students know exactly what they have to do when they come into the classroom they know exactly that they're doing a task that is pertaining to the last lesson. So they're recalling it, it's called recall and retention. So, you know, they're able to retain it and they're able to use that information um, to answer questions. So you can use the analogy to football. You know, if you keep repeating these skills uh, and if you keep doing, you know, the core skills, the outside of the right foot, inside of the right foot, pump pass Mm. and so on and so forth. uh, It's kind of skill mastery. If you're mastering it, then you can use it most effectively in the game based situation. And then it frees up your decision making. Because then you know your execution of the skill will be much more effective. So then you can make a better decision, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I thought those, you know, first ten minutes uh, in all the training sessions that we had, which were which were core skills, um, were probably the most important part of the session, to be honest. Mm. Because you all, when you were walking around as a coach, you were also trying to gauge whether or not the players were tuned in. You know, and you can maybe see one or two players who, you know, a bit lackadaisical when they were kicking the ball or maybe they were trying to catch the ball and dropping, and then you're kind of saying, you know, come on, you know, concentrate, concentrate, because this is very important. Uh, So yeah, so I think it's not only is it important for
0: the technical side of things, but psychologically as well, because it sets the uh, training session at the beginning. Yeah, the tone. See, Ross, this is why we paid big money to have Joe on, on the podcast. This is this is the reason the people power when we got rid of Joe when we sacked him that they brought him back for for the the information the theory of practice and learning like that exactly it's invaluable and it backs us up which is what we wanted him for <laughs> um,
2: no, just end that because like, it's important that like, like these things only work if you get hundred percent buy in from the players you know and and the players aren't just saying oh, we're doing this again or we're doing the core skills again. Mm -hmm. They've got to be completely engaged. And it's called purposeful practice from a psychological term. They have to make sure that they're doing it properly, essentially. And they're feeling, you know, why that kick was successful, the feedback they get from it. And over time, they just know how to complete a successful successful movement, whatever it is, so yeah. it's important the players really engage it, in it and and buy into it. So that's why you vary it and you don't do it every night and you disguise it in other ways. Because exactly. if you do the same thing every every time, of course, yeah. it's
0: human nature you're going to get bored. But yes, you, you have to vary it and make sure that, that that it's varied for the players. Yeah, no, it's brilliant, uh, Joe. I love that. I love that information. Actually, it's really really good. Recall and revise and and and, and everything really good uh, i i I see a lot of people who are in involved with the game based approach as well saying that begin your session with a game and 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 to to introduce different things and then go back to practice and then into a game and like I've tried that I, and we've tried it the one thing I find a problem with that is you throw players straight into the game. First of all, as adults and inter-county players, it does take time to get involved into a session, and like physically and even mentally, that you're kind of building up your way through the session. You know, you're getting rid of your aches and pains and whatever, increasing the intensity. But on the other side as well, you throw them into the game and they enjoy it. It's very difficult to bring them back to like a drill or a practice afterwards. I kind of feel that like once they're in the game, they have no interest in anything else. They want to just continue in the game. And you can't continue a game for like 75 minutes. Uh,
1: Sorry, don't make uh, Yeah, yeah, I agree, Kieran. I think, um, you know, we, we always talk about getting the players ready physically for games, you know, getting their heart rate up <coughs> and then putting them into a the game. But we also have to think about getting their, refining their technical ability before they go into a game as well. And yeah, yeah um, if you just go into a game, straight away if you have a five minute warm up and you go into a game straight away I can guarantee you as a coach you'll be pulling them back in after five or ten minutes because some players won't be up to it or or a lot of players won't be up to it and then you've just you've just wasted five minutes and you've started off the training session negatively so yeah Yeah. I think it's important i would be a big advocate for doing the technical stuff before starting the game yeah
2: just on that, key quickly. So, two things from that. So, I think we have a quite a good term that we use at QPI and we, and we use at London as well about scaffolding the session. So, yeah. each session is about a, a teaching. It's a teaching process. It's an hour and a half teaching session where we're going to teach these group of players and these individuals their outcomes. So the first 20, 30 minutes is about scaffolding that aspect. You're putting pictures in their mind about what they're taking into the game. So, you, you know, you're, you're, whether it's the core skill, so you're looking at awareness and you're looking at your midfielders on the half turn, for example, playing forward. You do that in an unopposed practice so that he becomes aware. So when he goes into his stock practice or the game, that's what he's tuned in to do. The second thing is, there's a big thing around problem solving, and like let them problem solve, and that yeah. will that will lead them in, in, you know, good stead longer term. Now yeah. we were we, we we had one year to to make a team right, yeah. If we waited for them to problem solve, we would have been gone in a year. So <laughs> th- there's there's times where, of course, you let them problem solve, and we want adaptable thinkers on hmm. the pitch, but. We have to actually tell him what to do. And part of coaching is, well, do you know what? In this instance, stand here and this is how I want your body to receive the ball. Because yeah. if you receive this way, you're going to be more effective. He might never get to the point of doing that. So
0: yeah. there's a balance there between problem-solving yeah. and actually being a coach. Yeah, and what, what is your job as a coach? Like, It's your job. You're put in that position to improve that player. And whether you use a facilitation approach or a teaching or authoritarian you know, you you choose what is the best way, but your job is is to to actually in in improve those players. Um, okay, let's let's move on. That's an interesting topic. I think Ross and it's something we could definitely come back to again. You know, Joe, do you want to touch on just the IAPS and the process of how we did the IAPS, and then Ross is going to come in and tell us why Bernard Jackman is wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. The, the individual action plans here. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, just from are, a,
0: a practical sense of you, you kind of organized a lot of them in, in in the last kind of couple of years. And what what we did, how we ran them throughout the season and everything.
1: Yeah. Well, um, one of the first things that uh, that we had to do was uh, we had to get um, we had to sit down with the players and um, kind of do one to one sessions <laughs> with them and um, just have a general chit-chat with them, a general overview of how they felt the season, of, of what they wanted to achieve, you know, throughout the season. And then um, you would give them particular targets. So one of the targets that you might give them would be physical targets. But obviously me uh, as a non-sports scientist, I wouldn't really be fait with that type of stuff. So I would have to speak to Ross and then Ross would, would give me the target and then we'd feed it into it. Uh, so we we would do that. It wouldn't really be a long meeting with the players because, you know, uh, you didn't really have much time, and these these usually tended to happen uh, before training sessions, particularly the ones early on in the season. Um, and you give them uh, technical uh, targets as well, you know, and you would make sure that the players agreed with these targets because, as Ross said, if you don't get the buy-in from the players, then it's a it's a red light from the beginning. Uh, so you had to make sure that that the targets uh, were agreed. So we usually had these meeting at the beginning, try to get them very early on because you don't want to wait too long before mm. the season begins. And then after that, you would see, monitor their progress and you would see how they were doing maybe after six, six to eight weeks would be the next review meeting. And in around that time, perhaps we're starting the start of the National League. So the season has, has really begun. Uh, and a lot of players have maybe two or three, three or four games under their belt. Mm. So you have a clearer idea as a coach. You know, as a coach, remember some of these players when you're having the meeting with them, the first meeting, you may not have seen them play, actually, because we get 15 new players in a year. So, so you don't even know what type of player they are. You know, I, th- I kind of think after you've seen maybe uh, three or four training sessions and a game, I think it's important, maybe two, two games yeah. of a player, I think then you can kind of make a judgment and you kind of know a player as well. And you can see what areas that they need to improve on. So I think the sort of second, third meetings that we had with those players, Kieran, it was yourself as well. It was the other coaches that had the the, the meetings with them. Uh, we were able to, you know, help them or support them a little bit better because we had the knowledge of that particular player. Yeah. So yeah, so so we had meetings maybe about three, about three times, three times a year with each player, and they were very, very valuable because. The players were also able to give us feed, feedback as coaches things that maybe we didn't know or we were unaware of which helped us in our practice so yeah so th- those um iaps were very very good
0: yeah and i found them that it was it was player led and coach facilitated so we we helped the process through but it was the player really coming up with things and the thing i liked was that Ross as the sports scientist, our head of performance was sitting in on the meetings and it was a very much a kind of multidisciplinary team together with the player. And like even we'd have it on a PowerPoint slide and the player could add bits to it. And it's kind of all leading itself into the player taking ownership over their own game. So like going, well, look, you come up with the things and then we'll have a discussion and together then we'll, we'll decide on it. Um, no, I, and, and, and ways before I pass over to you, Ross, they became the cornerstone of our work, didn't they? That everything lent itself into that. And every session, training session, we'd ask the players, well, what are you working on tonight? What are you getting from it? Like, even though it's a, an att- a counter-attacking, large, extensive session focused mainly on our centre-forward, our wing-backs, our midfielders getting forward uh, with the ball at speed, well, what's the fullback getting out of this? What's the corner forward? What's the goalkeeper getting out of this? So every player to think individually like that as well as the team. Ross, tell us anyway, what, what, where's Bernard Jackman going wrong? And we have to mention we're good friends with Bernard.
2: Got, I, 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 yesterday, I think I upset him on the on, on the WhatsApp as well because I said we were talking about early and late specialisation. I said, "Look, you can specialise late in rugby because it's mainly yeah. physical, so there's not much <laughs> technique there." And he <laughs> was having it back and forth. It's all good. No, so you know, Bernard a really fascinating, really experienced guy. Came on and spoke about the IEPs and said, "Look, great that you guys were doing them, but everyone else is doing them. So what mm. extra are you doing?" And I, mm. I just think I agree. I think there's two strands to this, right? I agree, and then there's something else extra that I think not everyone's doing. I think the fact that everyone's got IAPs across the four corners has probably come quite common now. And I think everyone's getting targets from physical, technical, tactical, psych, so social through yeah. the different testing modalities or subjective things that coaches and players are coming up with. Yeah. You've then got your individual pod time. So we set up like 15, 20 minutes before training where players can work on what, we felt and they felt more importantly was the most important part for them to improve on as part of their game and that was either a weakness to be addressed or a strength to be a super strength so that was one part and i think probably a majority of organizations around the world sporting clubs are doing that i think that the second part was as you alluded to their kids that the key is in the coaching session because that's the main crux of, of the teaching mm. and the learning is each player getting their individual programs within the team session so that's why we have things like stock practices, like you said, when we had counter-attack session, when we had hit the blue, we had pop-up, and all these drills, we'll talk about, they're on the website, and we'll talk about in a little bit more detail, but they were just names of practices that essentially people knew, the team knew now, and they got certain outcomes out for certain people, but yeah. everybody had an outcome. So. We always said, and we brought in the journals that we brought across from QPR to the players and said, right, after every session, what was in it for you? So, like you said, if you're doing a counter-attack session and you're mainly working on the centre-forward and the inside-forward, the movement between the two and the interchange, well, then the centre-back's getting good work. Well, actually, the the midfielders are getting tracking because the runners are going past them. The wing-backs have got to be on good transition when you win the ball to stay nice and wide. So... That then links into the IAP. So within their IAPs now, you've got the job essentials and what each person needs to do, their individual action plans, and real good reflection from the player on what they got out of every session. Because as Joe said, every second counted. We had to maximise everything. And I don't think that coaching level is being done
0: all around the world. Yeah, I I think I I have to agree with you because I think a a lot of teams are obviously looking at the four-corner model and approach and breaking down every player's uh, needs and targets. But the key, like you say, is well, what are you doing with that information? Are you actually having an effect in training? And I think the thing of the little uh, training pods that were going on, individual practice pods, and the level of detail that we were going into may not be happening everywhere else. Um, Joe, back to you do you want to mention just about the position essentials and the job essentials and how, remember in those meetings, we used to split players up into like a group of wing backs, and, and they would come up with their own title and just what, like, what was their job? What was their characteristics? And Ross, you can follow in on, on how we kind of adapted that. You've covered some of it adapted that into the sessions then.
1: Yeah, well, one of the things that we, we tried to do was we tried to break down um, the positions into certain roles. So, for example, we had the cornerbacks or the man markers, we actually, we, we would call them. And we could say that, you know, you, you can kind of define the man marker. You know, he, he has to be tied to his man. You know, he has to be very, very fast over short distances. He has to be physically good when, when he's uh, tackling. Um, you know, it has to be good also when he's coming out and distributing, maybe to the half-back line or to the midfield. Yeah. Uh, so what we done was, in order to get the players to buy into that, we split them off into groups. So uh, when we had a meeting, uh, we would have maybe had eight tables of different groups of, of roles. So we would have had our cornerbacks. We would have had our wing wingbacks uh, as well. We would have had our kind of centre-backs, I uh, think. They, were, they also named what they were as well. So yeah. you gave ownership. We had the midfielders, the half forwards. We also had the playmakers uh, grouped as well. And then we had the full forwards or the scorers or the finishers, if you like, uh, on top. Uh, so we held these meetings and the players, we gave the players kind of stimulus material, maybe 20 things that you think... Are important for that position, but kind of 20 things—that's too much. Can you break it down to maybe 10? Okay, yeah. you've got your 10 most important things for that position. How about we now break it down to five? Yeah. So you you kind of try to get them to hone in on the most important aspects of that particular position uh, that they're going over. Uh, so yeah, so so that was good. And and once the players were able to give us the feedback, they actually got up in their own groups and presented back to us, and that yeah. was a form of giving them ownership. And uh, what I would have done, I would have taken all the information and I would have kind of jazzed it up a little and sent it back out to the players and say, okay, here's your five or six key essentials for your particular position. Uh, So then they know when they're going into a training session and they want certain outcomes is that, you know, if if you're in trouble in a match, you know, even at halftime, go back to your job essentials, go back to your basics. And we had them here, and if you remember, we had them pinned up in yeah. the changing rooms you know so they were really really useful for home games you know because yeah. at the end of the day that's all that matters is your job and your what's job. essentially important for your job yeah. so so that was good in terms of uh, refocusing players even at the beginning or at half time during yeah. games because sometimes at half time we discussed this before sometimes you know lots of things can be said but if you just focus back in your key essentials that's hugely important and yeah. I think players bought into that too
0: yeah brilliant. okay. Brilliant information about uh, the process, Joe. I think you'll often hear players say in professional football and everything as well, that all they want to know is what do the coaches and the manager want them to do? What is their job? And once they know their job, they know what's expected of them, and they, they, they know, on a big day, like you say, if things aren't going well, go back to the basics. If you're a man marker, like you can talk about all the tactical stuff. Are you marking your man? Are you getting close to your man? And that's it. If you do that, if you focus on that, then you can start thinking about, OK, I'm going to now add some additional value to the team by attacking up the pitch and see, can I set up a score and stuff like that? And Ross, we then really started to look at the players and go, OK, if you want to be wing back on this team, you have to be fast, you have to be fit, you have to be repeat that, that's your physical but also, you probably have to be very good carrying the ball at speed. Your distribution needs to be good. So we could kind of form form an idea, the characteristics of a player. And if they're not that, they might struggle to get in our team.
2: Exactly. And it's all about accountability. So sometimes in sport, we forget that. You know, when we work in our day jobs, we have accountability for our job. So... Giving these essentials and job roles to players gives them accountability in everything they do. So did you do your job role in training and in the games? That bottom line, if they've done the job roles to a high spec Guarantee they've had a good performance um and also it holds us to account as well so mm. when you're coaching a session and you want to improve someone's ability to carry so the wing back needs to as part of his ip is to carry the ball over larger distances and gain more ground and, and whatever his ip was fits in have you given the opportunity to do that in your coaching sessions because mm. then when it comes back to it and you say well i don't think you're carrying over distance is very good well he can go to you and say well I've, we haven't done one session on that. So yeah. you've failed the player. The, fa- the yeah. player hasn't failed. You've play- so it all comes back to individual development. It all comes back to accountability. And it gives you a real cornerstone of what each individual player does. And then the key then is obviously linking that to the units of the team. And that's the tactical info that then to take them on the next level of how you integrate it all. But number one, yeah. like you said, Joe and Kieran, the, the job roles, are, are they being done?
0: Bottom yeah. line. And that links in perfectly, Ross, with the last little mini section that we were that we were going to speak on as regards to that performance feedback. And like we would often, Joel, at different times, remember it could be mid championship or it could be in a couple of weeks before championship game. We'd have a review session with the player where we'd sit down and kind of go, "Okay, how are things going? How's everything with the IAP? Here's what you need to do to." get in the team for the big game or to perform well and also a really good opportunity for them to like speak back and say like you said Ross that well you know I need to work on my carrying of speed with the ball but actually we're not doing that much practice of that in the session so it's kind of putting it back on to us as well and so Joe that kind of feedback as well as like feedback from individual games is so important isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's massively important that feedback that you get from the players because then it allows you to plan. And just for example, um, you know, some of the players may not have been getting opportunities, and you might have said to them, "Well, how how do you think you're going?" And he may have said, "Well, you know, I haven't, I haven't got any opportunities. I haven't even been coming on." Yeah. Uh, so so it allowed us to to kind of plan. And one of the things that we were able to do from that was to have fifteen v fifteen games. You know, we had AVBs. A- yeah. Or, you know, we, we brought in maybe uh, junior teams or development players and that allowed us maybe to have a look at these players. So, yeah, so it adjusted our planning slightly when you get the feedback from it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Ross, it, it, they, they, were, they were important, weren't they? Because when, you, when, when I see some managers and coaches out there and they're not willing to take information back and feedback and review sessions with players, it worries me. Because I think, um, do they really have confidence in their own ability because they're not willing to be questioned?
2: Yeah, and and again, we talk about the way things have evolved and stuff. You know, now things are becoming much more player-centered approach, and mm. the, the organizations that are putting that into fruition are the ones that are succeeding and doing really well. Um, just back on the job roles and essentials, I think it just gives real clarity and a real starting point. So you don't just have a player, or you don't have a coach just going off on a tangent. And and like mm. Joe said, when you go fifteen v fifteen, and maybe you're looking at ten new players. You've got the five things that you're marking them on. So mm. it doesn't. It, you can look at a player and go, yeah, he did all right. But, but actually, how did he do on the five things in his position? Well, if he only did one of them really well, then no, he's, he's probably not going to come into the panel or you're not going to consider him yet. So, But it just gives a little bit of objectivity within the, the subjective nature of coaching, I guess. Um, but the reviews were, were essential. Good feedback from the players. How we improved and how we adapted the program, and and basically give the service for them because we're there to help them improve, which in turn, you
0: know, looks good on the team. So they, they were essential. The, the, in my mind, the, the highest level of coaching is that individual player coaching within a team setting. So you've got you've got thirty players. You need to organise the practice. You need to make sure that you know you're getting all your physical and tactical outcomes, but also are you making sure that the man markers are getting their outcomes? Are you making sure the wing backs are attacking with the ball at speed? Are you making sure the playmaker and the centre forward is receiving on the half turn and you know carrying the ball? Are you making sure that the, the finishers and the match winners are getting their scores? The corner forwards, the full forwards—that's it's the hardest thing about coaching to be able to organise that, but also it's it's the most enjoyable I think Joe.
1: Yeah, and you know, as as a player, you know, you want to. If you're a forward and you're going to a training session, you you want to be scored and you want to be getting on the end of things. And if the coach is um, is creating games that don't allow players forwards to score, and let's just say it's a possession game in an area, and it's done the whole training session, then that forward isn't going to be happy. You know, it's going to demotivate them because it's not playing to their strengths. You know, the man markers might be happy if you're just playing a little possession game, but certainly the forwards who want to score they won't be happy. So, yeah, so it's very, very difficult to kind of facilitate all the players and get outcomes for all the players. But we have to do it. That's one of the challenges of being a coach.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Ross, any final thoughts around the the, the huddle and, and the video analysis or, or the position essentials?
2: Yeah, I think just jumping on the back of that, Joe, as well, I think he's right. And and essentially how you do that, the easiest, is making the practices look like the game. So there's got to be an element in the session. Whether it's a phase of play, whether it's a game that is like the game itself, and they and the players get to experience what they're going to have to do on the Saturday or Sunday. Um, but it's also important that they recognise when you're doing the tight possession, the inside forward recognises why he's doing that possession. So he's doing that for his movement in tight areas, so he can create space when you go into large areas to finish. So it's just about them reflecting all the time and. That's just how the huddles use gear. So yeah. the huddle in training and games, the players have their positional essentials. They have their IAPs. You have key points, tactical framework points that you want them to look at during certain games and training. Mm-hmm. And they basically look at themselves and others around those areas. So they start to look at positive feedback, yeah. areas that maybe they can improve. And then we bring that back to the lab and discuss it. And And yeah. how can we then improve that? Or if it's good, how can we keep
0: doing it? Yeah, and we have to mention that the the huddle is the video analysis Sorry. performance software and not, not a, an ancient long huddle out on the pitch, which it becomes a bit of a waste of time after, after a while. But I, I, I mean, I love huddle and I love using it. Ross, we've started using it with UFAB now coaching. I love going on and creating clips of players. And what I really enjoyed, Joe, with, with London J team, was the players were individually we, we, we videoed every training session which a lot of those practices now are up on the website and we put them up on huddle and then players would go in and individually look at them create little clips and then send us a little message and say listen lads i've created a few clips there can you get back to me and just tell me what what would you recommend me do in that situation And I used to, I love that. I think that's real player ownership and deep level coaching.
1: Yeah. You know, you have to ask the question, is there anything that has a greater impact on performance than actually having a look at yourself performing and having a discussion with your coach about you performing? You know, I don't, I think that's the, one of the greatest things that you can do and huddle, Huddle was an excellent tool for us to use in terms of analyzing players and also you know analyzing you know as coaches we might analyze the game an overview of the game or tactically but it was massively important to us in terms of individual player feedback as well yeah
0: definitely so so we need we need huddle to get in contact and come on and sponsor the show lads and then we can we can we use it enough ourselves and we can give it a shout out for Ross as a product
2: yeah I mean we leave that stuff the commercial stuff over to you kids we know you love it So um, (laughs) let's know how it goes with that no listen that was that was essential and even in the full-time stuff those individual clips because Mm. the coach the coach can't go in and clip in the panel 25 clips and do 10 so and it's more powerful if the player does it so that was essential that we had such a good uh, panel the players were excellent they go they used to go in do their clips send it over discussion started creating so you've got all those layers of individual understanding as well as the tactical and overview of the game. And that's how you develop things over time.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. When I listened to the Tui talking about the individual coaching and the position essentials and stuff like that, I think if someone was to ask me, what's my coaching philosophy? And most people will say game-based approach. I would say scenario-based approach. I think what I I always loved doing was think of a scenario, Ross, like what you had said about uh, reflecting the game. Think of a scenario that happens uh, multiple times in a game, transfer that across into a training session. And it may not be just the exact same as in a game and that's it. Because you might, you need to modify and adapt the variables to overload one section of that, don't you? So you might need extra repetition of your centre forward, lean Gavigan, breaking the line, you know, carrying the ball and shooting. So you're going to have to modify things a little bit. You're not just going to, Put me in a game and go okay play but you're creating a specific scenario in order to overload that which facilitates facilitates learning and teaching exactly and, and what you might do at the start is go well actually he actually needs 20
2: repetitions on his right and left of doing this unopposed so yeah, yeah there's no thinking let's just get him in the rhythm of putting the ball over the bar this yeah. is the position and kind of angle of run i want you to make or i think you'll be effective yeah. we do yeah. it for five minutes then we drop it into the, the overloaded scenario and the function, we call it like a function, um, yeah. and then it gets transferred into the game. So that's the thought process that goes from start to finish.
0: And even preceding that, if you think back to your core skills practice where he's working on his non-dominant side, just kicking Joe over and back, Like that's where the scaffolding happens, isn't it? You're bringing it all the way along that continuum, Joe, in, in the session in order to get the final outcome then.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of building it up it's a it's a build up approach, uh, so that they're able to refine their skills and then they're able to go into that sort of asset test the, the game, the game yeah. scenario and uh, perform their best in the game, which is what which is what it's all about. It's all about performance at the end of the day.
2: Exactly, exactly. And more importantly, because the player understands the link from one to the other to the other. So he yeah. because he needs to understand what exactly he's working on and he internalises that, and that's how he develops, not through that session, but over time, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, man, um, we, said, we said that we'd keep it under an hour. Ross, it was a little bit like one of my training sessions. It's gone to an hour and a half. <laughs> I think that's important because the podcast is the locker room and it's
2: similar to a training session with Kieran Dealey. You put 75 <laughs> minutes and, uh, and, we're, and, you know, the floodlights are going off and we're still working, Aww. so...
0: No problem. We have too, too much to talk about, lads. That's the, <laughs> that, that is the the issue. <laughs> okay, look, that's that's loads of great information. And it's a good point you make, Ross, about it's the locker room. So we want to give out information that we did down in the trenches and the details of what you can do with your team, hopefully when the, the, the sport gets back up and running and everything like that. Okay, so... Uh, make sure head over to the website, everything that we spoke about actually there is up on the website available to the members. So there's so much information there, so make sure you, you have a look. And as always, thanks to all our members with all their great support over the last, just over a year now, 200 and 230 members I think we have um, at the moment. We've probably had about another 150 people at, at other times. So it's really been been brilliant. And th- thanks for all your support. Guys, we we'll leave it at that and we'll um, catch up in the next few days.
1: Yep. Okay. Thanks, Kier. Thanks, Ross.
0: <laughs> Cheers, Brilliant. Joe. Thanks, Keir, and Thank you very much. Thanks, lads.